I appreciate the opportunity to be up here again and open God's Word with you. If you want to go ahead right now and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, I should mention, after all those years of preaching out in that state to the West, and not having done it now for a while, I think I've built up what a friend of mine referred to as rollover minutes. And you know, you get to use extra rollover minutes. So we may be here a while. Um, (laughs) 11.15, 11.30, I don't know, somewhere around there. But if you didn't bring a lunch, I'll try to let you out as soon as I can after that so you can get out to whatever restaurant you want to get to. Now, if you're not familiar with me, you may not realize I have a sense of humor, but I have to ask you, if you even for a moment thought I was serious, (laughs) and you were praying I wasn't, how did that make you feel? How did you respond just inside? Was it like, oh no, man, really, that long? Or were you out there among those who would truly be my friend saying, just go on as long as you want, preacher, we're here to listen. If that's you, let me know afterward and we can have a great conversation. But you know, how we respond to things, especially unexpected things, says a lot about us. Some unexpected things, I hope you don't, but if you're familiar with the Incredible Hulk, when he got provoked, irritated, he would, I think the phrase was, hulk out. Green, muscular, just, you know. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum where nothing phases you. Your heart rate stays calm, everything's fine. I picture a woman I saw on Wheel of Fortune years ago. She was, had the chance for a big spin or whatever, and she spun and she hit bankrupt, lost all the money she had. Her response is one I'll never forget. She simply stood there and said, praise the Lord. I would hope if I saw 10 or $20,000 go right down the drain, I could have that same type of a response. How we respond says something about us, but even more importantly, how we respond to the word of God says a lot about us. Many of us, men and women, just concluded a discipleship series that we've been going through this fall in a book called The Knowable Word to help us learn better how to study God's word, how to realize what's going on, take it to heart, interpret it properly, and apply it to our lives. I read something by a lady I'd never heard of, a comedian by the name of Linda Smith. She said, if God wanted us to believe in him, he'd exist. Well, Linda Smith passed away in 2006. I have a hunch now she knows the answer to that question. She didn't respond to God. We can see it probably in your own lives and certainly in scripture. People who have responded to God appropriately, Abraham, Genesis 12, God called him, get up, leave your home, leave your country. Abraham obeyed, he went. We read in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that he went not knowing just where God was going to lead him. As someone once said, going, not knowing, that was Abraham. He followed where God wanted him to go. We can read about Jonah. Well, maybe he's not the best example. God said, get up, leave your country, and go to Nineveh. Jonah got up, 
and he went the other way, tried to. God redirected him. The interesting thing is when he finally got to Nineveh and presented his message, the Ninevites, it says, repented and believed, which is not what Jonah was hoping for. He wanted them to be punished. How do we respond to the word of God? Well, those are various examples, but it's Christmas time. And I really appreciated the music up here from both sides of our platform. So let's look at some examples that come from what we typically call the Christmas story. Four examples, three of them from Luke, and toward the end we're going to have to backtrack, in your Bibles at least, to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1. But before we do that, let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, my prayer right now would be that for myself and everyone here, we would respond to the truth of your word with ears that hear, with minds that understand, and with a heart that seeks to obey. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the one who is himself the word of life. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Something else we learned in that discipleship series, just in the last chapter of that book, I think the title was The Unity of the Whole, and the word we kind of focused on was correlation. How various parts of Scripture correlate, relate to each other. And I hope that's what we'll find here in these four portions that we'll look at this morning, because I believe they are related as they all point to how individuals responded to God's Word. In Luke chapter 1, I don't know, your Bible may have something titled like in uh, verse 5, birth of John the Baptist foretold. And it begins by telling about a man by the name of Zechariah, who was a priest before God, served in the temple in Jerusalem. We read early on that he was righteous, he and his wife, that they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord, but... They were childless. Going on down to verse 8, we read that now while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. It's not an uncommon reaction when people have a visit from a heavenly messenger in Scripture. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." And Zechariah said to the angel, "'How shall I know this?' For I am an old man and my wife, and here I love the King James phrasing, 
my wife is well stricken in years. I remember hearing that as a child when our pastor would read from the King James, and I, I, I wondered just what is well stricken, but the ESV puts it very well for us today. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah was serving in the temple. There were 24 divisions of priests in that time, several thousand priests in all. Each division would serve one week at a time, twice a year. And whenever a division was on duty, they would cast lots to see who would go into the holy place to offer incense before the Lord. So two weeks out of the year, your division is on duty. There were many, many hundreds of priests serving at that time. So for Zechariah to be the one chosen to go into the holy place and make that offering was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We can see from this passage that Zechariah believed God. It said earlier that he and his wife were both righteous. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. He was also a man not only who believed in God, but who believed in prayer. The angel said, verse 13, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, there are questions about what exactly the angel was referring to in Zechariah's prayer. Since Zechariah acknowledged that he and his wife were well stricken in years and well beyond the age of childbearing, Perhaps, instead of praying for a son at this point, he had been praying for the arrival of Messiah. It seems to lean more in the text to his prayer still going on, even at an advanced age, for a son, because the angel says, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. Little did Zechariah know at that point, at that moment, that both prayers were going to be fulfilled. They would have a son, and that son would be the one who would go forth to announce the arrival of the Messiah. Zechariah was a man of prayer as well as a student of the scriptures. But then we get down to verse 18, and Zechariah says, How shall I know this? Zechariah had some doubts. Now you might say, Well, he's just asking a question. I mean, that's a logical question. We're old, you know, we wouldn't expect to have a child at this age. Maybe he'd been praying for it, but with not a lot of hope. But when we go over to verse 20, we find out indeed he had his doubts because the angel said, you'll be unable to speak until these things take place. Why? Because you didn't believe my words. This angel had come from heaven with a word from God for Zechariah. You're going to have, your wife's going to have a child. Your prayer's been answered. Zechariah says, mm. and just how is that going to come about? I mean, we're older people. 
fact, the way he phrases it when he said, how shall I know this? The word know carries the idea of knowing by experience. How are we going to experience this? We're too old. Today, we might suspect maybe Zachariah was from Missouri and he'd be saying, show me. Explain just how this is gonna happen because I've got some serious doubts. In Zechariah, we see one with that specter of doubt. But what we learn about the truth of God's word in our response is that when we are confronted with the truth of God's word, do not respond with unbelief. Linda Smith, I mentioned, she must have known something about the Bible Something about the fact that people talk about a deity, about a God who is over everything, even if she didn't, didn't know the details of the New Testament, of Christ and salvation. And she said, if God wanted us to believe in him, he'd exist. All I can think of is God in heaven chuckling at the foolishness, the blasphemy of her response. When we're confronted with God's word, with the truth of it, don't respond with unbelief. I was talking about this with my wife the other day and she mentioned a time before we got married, I think we were within a few weeks of actually getting officially engaged. And we talked about how things would work and that I was going to go on to seminary and that she would work to provide income during that time. And then me having been a business major in college, I was crunching the numbers. And she even remembers, this is the amazing thing about my wife. She can remember what I said, what I did. You name the date and the place. She remembers. She said we were in a laundromat in Portland, Oregon, doing our washing because we were both going to Bible school at the time. And I said to her, I don't think we're going to be able to pull it off. I don't think we're going to have the finances to get married. Well, you can imagine how that hit her. But I, you know... Me being the great romantic, I'm looking at it from the practical side. I just, I don't see how we're going to be able to keep this ship of love afloat. Well, obviously we did. I mean, God had put, you know, he'd brought us to Portland, Oregon from California separately. He had allowed us to meet each other, follow life. And here I am saying, eh, this far down the road, I don't think it's going to work. I remember too, the president of my seminary after I enrolled talking up there in Portland. Dr. Earl Rodmacher, we used to refer to him as Earl the Pearl. He was a student of the scriptures, a man on fire for the Lord. He said when he came to Western Seminary, I think in the early 1970s, they had 50 or 60 students was all. And on one occasion he was talking with Bill Bright, the head of Campus Crusade for Christ, now crew, and he was telling Dr. Bright, you know, I, th I can see in five years, we ought to have maybe a hundred students at this seminary. And I'll never forget what Bill, he said, Bill Bright said to him. Bill Bright said oh, to the president of the seminary, he said, oh, ye of little faith, you should have 500 students in five years. In five years, they did. By the time I got there in the mid-1970s, there were, I think, 550 students at that seminary, and yet Dr. Rod Mocker himself admitted at that time his faith was not big enough. He had some doubts about what God would do. But when we are confronted 
with the truth of God's word. Don't respond with unbelief. When we read in Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't look at that and other passages calling us to belief and say, well, I'm not sure about that. We can hang our hat. We can hang our eternal future on what God has said. Well, that's kind of scene one, if you will. And that talks about sort of the wrong way to respond in unbelief. But let's look at the next passage. If you want to go down to verse 26, because just above that, we find that Elizabeth did have a child. She secluded herself for five months. And she praised the Lord for what he had done. Then we get down to verse 26. We're going to read about Mary and the visit from heaven that Mary had. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, he's getting his frequent flyer miles in, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now the sixth month referred to takes us back to what just happened. That's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So she is well on the way to giving birth to that child. Gabriel sent to a city in Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. As with Zechariah, a heavenly visitor suddenly appears and greets you, you're not certain just what's happening or what's about to happen. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. That's a good verse to hang on to sometimes when things seem pretty dark and bleak. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary, we see, is a virtuous woman engaged to be married to Joseph. We'll read about Joseph in just a few minutes. It's interesting, we've gone from an aged man to a young woman. In a moment, we're going to look at an aged woman and then when we come back to Joseph, we'll be dealing with a young man. And when I say young, for Mary, it was common at that time for women and men to be betrothed to each other many times in their teens, 14, 15, 16 years old. So we're talking in all likelihood about a very young girl at this point. And the angel comes and says, Mary, you are highly favored. 
The idea of that is you have been blessed with grace from God. God has smiled upon you and looked on you with his favor. You've been shown grace. Now, we don't know anything of Mary prior to this. We don't know, you know, how she had lived her life. We don't know what it was. All we know is that God sovereignly chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Something many times I think we gloss over too when we read verse 28. It says, He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That phrase, the Lord is with you, pops up periodically in Scripture. Not a whole lot. Either the Lord is with you or the Lord was with him or her. For example, if you were to look in Judges chapter 6, there was a fellow named Gideon. And when the angel came to him and greeted him, he said, the Lord is with you. And we know what Gideon was able to do. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Nathan came to King David and said the same thing. The Lord is with you. David, the great king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. Yes, with his failings, but still one who was highly favored by God. God was with him. Genesis chapter 39. Joseph, the man, one of two men in Scripture, along with Daniel, of whom no sin, no disobedience is seen in him. Now we know because of what Scripture teaches, correlating everything, if you will, that he was indeed a sinner. But nothing in Scripture speaks to a fault in his behavior. And yet in chapter 39 of Genesis, again, it is said, the Lord, God, was with Joseph. And in 2 Kings 18, King Hezekiah, who sought to follow God also, the statement is made, God was with him. So for the angel to come and say, Mary, you are highly favored, God is with you, is a sign both of comfort and a reminder that God cares about her. God has a special task or mission for her. Now we saw where, like Zechariah, she asked a question. Zechariah had asked, how shall I know this from an old man? How shall I know it? And we want to say, well, Zechariah, you kind of just got a word from heaven by the angel Gabriel. That should be good enough. You can know because of what God said. Now respond properly. Mary's question was, how will this be? I mean, I'm not married. I'm a virgin, and you're telling me I'm going to have a child. She's thinking on the human level. That can't possibly be. I don't believe she was doubting because we'll read later at the end of the account where she meets Elizabeth that Elizabeth said she was blessed because she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Zechariah, if for no other reason, should have been able to think back in the history of Israel and remember a couple by the name of Abraham and Sarah who in all likelihood at their age if they had moved, would not have been looking for a home near a school. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90 when they had their child. Now, I don't know if that ever happening in my experience around the world today, but God, as he said, nothing is impossible with God. Zechariah apparently 
let that slip from his mind. There were other occasions too, the birth of Samson to a barren woman in Judges chapter 13. Samuel being born to Hannah and Elkanah when she had been barren. They weren't necessarily old, but God still was about the business of doing what to us seems impossible. Mary was favored by God and God had a task for her to fulfill. Mary simply said, how? How is this going to happen? Would you explain it to me, please? Now, how many young women around 14, 15, 16, maybe even 17, do you know who would respond like that? I think of her at her age, betrothed to Joseph, and now God comes and says, you're going to have a child, and she's trying to fit all this together. How is this going to happen? She's not so much doubting that God could But how is he going to bring it about? And of course, the angel's about to tell her. And he'll conclude by saying, nothing is impossible with God. He said, here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. God is going to do this. God is going to bring it about. You will have that child. I wonder too, and I I don't know, what was going through her, I'm going to have a child and yet I'm single? What are people going to say? What, what's Joseph going to say? Well, we'll read about that in a moment or two. And yet it's interesting to see Mary's response. Verse 38, she said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And when she said, let it be, that's put in the, in the form of a wish. In other words, if that's what God has said, then that's what I want to happen. What would our lives be like if we were to read the word and God, we realize God said something and oh, okay, that's what I want to happen. Or do we sometimes go, oh man, that's, that's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow. I'm not sure I can do that or say that or talk to that, or whatever it might be. She simply said, let it be to me and then according to your word. I have heard from God. I want what he said to happen. The other night at our discipleship table, at the conclusion of the meeting, we had a word of prayer around the table. And because we had been studying how to better understand and apply God's word to our lives, in the moment when I prayed, I mentioned someone you'll remember from the past, Mark Twain, who had said, it's not the things I don't understand in Scripture that trouble me. It's the things I do. What I understand bothers me because that means I have to live up to it, obey it, walk by it. And I remember Tate Moore commenting that he was at our table. He said, I think that's the first time I have ever heard Mark Twain mentioned in a prayer. But it was what Mr. Twain had said that was on my mind. Help us to take what we have learned that we know and apply it to our lives. Mary said, let it be to me according to your word. So when God's word is made clear to us, respond with belief. Sounds simple, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that is a fairly simple gospel. But it requires a lot. It requires us to acknowledge that God is who he says he is, that he did what he did through Jesus Christ on the cross and raising him from the dead, that sin was paid for at the cross, and that because I am a sinner, 
I need to come under his authority, acknowledge his place as the Savior and what he did for me and trust him, not only for this life, but for eternity because he paid the price for sin. How do you respond when God's word touches something in your life? Maybe it deals with the future. Plans you had made and then all of a sudden you realize those may not be quite in accordance with what God would have me do. When I was working in Texas, a woman I worked with came to me. We had been talking about scripture and I was trying to help her understand what the truth of scripture was, especially as it pertains to Jesus Christ. And she and her husband had made great strides. She came to me one day and said, you know, my husband Greg and I realized that we're gonna have to make a change. They had stock in a company that sold videotapes for younger ones, that was back, way back when. Used to plug them into a cassette player, you know all that. The problem for her was that the company that sold those didn't just sell G-rated, you know, nice little pleasant movies. They sold everything from soup to nuts and beyond. And they realized we're gonna have to make a change. Although we have made money from our investment in that company, we need to take it out. We can't put our future into that kind of business. Maybe it's somewhere that God touches you in relationship to your family. Something you realize that needs to change. Maybe going to somebody and asking forgiveness. Maybe speaking to someone you just haven't spoken to for a while just because things were kind of difficult. And we're called to be at peace with everyone, to, at least to the extent it depends on us. But when God's word speaks to us and touches that point, we need to respond with, as Mary did, belief. When I was up at Multnomah School of the Bible, we had a chapel one day, and I don't remember much of the message except the thrust of it was, if there's a rift between you and somebody, you need to make it good. You need to speak to that person if necessary, ask forgiveness, whatever it was. And I realized there was a man I'd worked for down in California who, when we parted ways, things probably, well, I know, they weren't right between us. So in that day-long chapel service we had, there was a break, and I went immediately to a payphone, called the fellow up, and apologized, and sought to work things out, which we did. Because all of a sudden, the truth of God's word just hit me like a laser beam. And I believed what it said. And I had to respond accordingly. But we don't respond with unbelief. We respond with belief. But scene three takes us to Elizabeth and Mary's visit to her. We see in verse 39 that in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Here is Mary, well stricken in years, and yet expecting a child in her sixth month. 
Elizabeth had no heavenly visitor. Or did she? I believe that at this point, because Mary would have had to travel from Nazareth down to the hill country of Judah, and it might have been a two or three, maybe four-day journey for the young girl, and that by the time she arrived, she indeed was pregnant with the Messiah. And when she went in and the greeting reached the ears of Elizabeth, the baby in her womb, John, whom we refer to as John the Baptist, made his first proclamation about the Messiah when he leaped in Elizabeth's womb. That was the heavenly visitor, if you will, Jesus who had entered the room. Elizabeth recognized the unique privilege given to Mary when she said, blessed are you among women. And the word there, blessed, is the word from which we get our English word, eulogy. You will be well spoken of. You will be honored because of what God has done in and through you. Now, we want to be careful not to go too far in honoring Mary. She is a human. She was a sinner just like everybody else. But God gave her the unique privilege and blessing of giving birth to Jesus Christ. Elizabeth's baby expressed joy at the presence of not only Mary, but the Messiah. And then Elizabeth, it says, filled with, controlled by, guided by the Holy Spirit, exclaimed, blessed are you. And she goes on then to say in verse 45, blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That word blessed in verse 45 is a different word from the word blessed above. It has the idea of being happy. It's the word we find in the Beatitudes. Blessed or happy are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, and so on. Happy are you, Mary, because you believed what was spoken to you and what will be fulfilled. When we see the fruit of God's word, as Elizabeth did, we can and should respond with praise. Thank the children who are up here. Thank our music team for what they do and their hard work and their efforts, but realize what's being done in and through them is the fruit of their trust and their walk with the Lord. Every good and perfect gift, as the Apostle James said, comes from heaven, from God our Father. So give him thanks for the fruit that you see being worked out in the lives of others. How often do we offer praise for what we see God doing in others' lives? Or do we sometimes just thank them and fall short of saying, I'm grateful to God because he used you in my life or in that life or because of the way I've seen you grow or whatever it might be. And we keep God as the focus. When we see the fruit of God's word, respond with praise. Praise to God for what he's done. Again, I... When I think about it, I'm still amazed at Mary, that young girl simply saying, let it be to me as you have said, and then going to her older relative to rejoice with her and hearing Elizabeth's words of praise. Meanwhile, back in Nazareth, we find Joseph. And if you will, go back over to Matthew chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to get there. I had a post-it in my Bible so I could just flip right to it. 
But when you get there, we'll just take a quick look at Matthew 18, 1, 18 through 25. We've seen an aged man, a young woman, an aged woman giving praise, and now a young man. He's also going to have a visit from heaven. We see that now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, and I, I want to believe this was Gabriel again, even though he isn't mentioned here. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph, similar to Mary, a young man, in all likelihood. Similar to Mary too, his desire is to do what he's been told. Joseph's attitude that we see there displays his obedience to the law. He recognized, okay, he had heard that Mary was expecting a child. Now we're not given, when we go to these, from Luke to Matthew, a strict timeline, but I believe Mary was told she was going to have a child. She went to see Elizabeth, was pregnant at that time, and we read at the, later on in Luke chapter 1, she spent three months with Elizabeth, <clears throat> perhaps being there for the birth of John the Baptist or close to it. Then she went back to Nazareth. And I believe it was then when Joseph probably found out that she was expecting. And he knows under the law, if a woman has been unfaithful during that betrothal period, he can divorce her. In fact, she could have been put to death. In the Jewish culture at the time, when a boy and a girl, a man and a woman, became betrothed, engaged, we would say, they were considered married. Even though they didn't live together, they didn't have the physical relationship, but they were considered married, and to break that betrothal required a divorce. That's why Joseph was going to divorce her, but being a just man and not wanting to embarrass her or shame her, he was going to do it quietly. He was going to put her away because that was what needed to be done under the law. His attitude also displayed his obedience to the Lord. He recognized that if she was pregnant before he had all the details that the angel told him, he should divorce her. He should end the engagement. But it's interesting then what happens. Verse 24, after the angel came and made this announcement, Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He did exactly what was told. And it says he took his wife. I believe he took her after the child was born because we read later in Luke 2. In fact, I think it was what Kyle read this morning. That when they went up to pay their taxes and Jesus was born, they were still just betrothed. They were not yet married. But Joseph did take her ultimately as his wife, married her as his wife. 
One of the ironies I found here, the scripture that's quoted in verse 23 of Matthew 1, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Many of you know that came from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and that scripture was given to King Ahaz, the king down in Judah, Jerusalem, in that area. They were being attacked by the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria. And Isaiah had gone to King Ahaz to say, trust in the Lord, believe him. If you don't believe him, just ask God to give you a sign. Whatever you name it, whatever you want. Ahaz was not a godly king. He had not been following what the Lord wanted him to do. But his response was, no, no, I, I don't want to test the Lord by asking for a sign. Oh, he was so pious. No, I think he knew that if there was a sign given, and God truly was going to do what God was going to do, he might just go ahead and judge Judah because of all the immorality that Ahaz had allowed. So Isaiah said, okay, if you won't ask for a sign, God himself will give you a sign. It was because of Ahaz's doubt that we find that verse. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. Now it comes to a young man, not a king, just, we might say, a garden variety Israelite gets a vision from heaven about his wife. And what does he do? He doesn't say, well, come on, now, prove it to me. No. He does what he was told to do. He got up and did what the angel had commanded him. What's interesting, too, I find, is Zechariah asked a question, Mary asked a question, Elizabeth gave praise, Joseph here, it doesn't utter a word. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, there's never a word that escapes Joseph's lips. We save ourselves a lot of trouble by talking less many times. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you and I are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Joseph's obedience spoke volumes about who he was. So when we're instructed by God's word, respond very simply with obedience. Not as Jonah did to get up and obey maybe halfway and then try to go the other way. I came across something, I don't know much about this woman. Uh, she appears to be a godly woman, her name, and she's from, I believe, somewhere in Africa. Her name is Gift, Gugu Mona. She said, faith is a devotion to obey God's word and his mysterious ways. Trust him, even sometimes when it seems like it's not going to make sense, as Mary did. I'm going to have a child. I'm not even married. I'm a virgin. How's that going to happen? Oh, okay. I'll trust you. Let it be the way you have said. I think really everything that I've mentioned this morning Believing, praising comes down to obedience to God and his word, as Joseph did. And yet Joseph is the one who shows simply by his actions without uttering a word. I couldn't think of that idea of obedience and responding to God's word, in, a case, in this case, with God's word, without thinking of Lila Trotman. That name may not ring a bell. Maybe Dawson Trotman rings a bell for some of you. He was the founder of the parachurch ministry called The Navigators. And back in the late 50s, he was in New York on a boating excursion with some other 
people from the navigators and a woman fell overboard, a young girl. He dived into the water to save her, which he did, but in the process, apparently had a heart attack and drowned. Word quickly reached the shore and his wife, Lila, came running down to the edge of the lake, Shroon Lake in New York. One of her friends ran out and said, oh, Lila, he's gone. Dawson's gone. Lila Trotman simply replied in the words of Psalm 115, verse three, our God is in the heavens and he does as he wishes. That may sound cold. No, it's not cold. She realized our time on earth here is like that. Whether it's the length of Dawson Trotman's life, 90, 12, whatever it might be. She knew where her husband was. That was the depth of her faith and her obedience to God. Not a wringing of her hands, not a wailing, but he's in heaven, I'm on earth, he does what he wishes. I think one of the marks of spirituality is we obey, believe, praise, is that quiet confidence that God is in control. And I, trust me, I need to learn that as much, maybe more than many of you do. God is in control. Lila Trotman showed that in her response. So let me ask you, as we talk about believing, praising, obeying, what do you need to place in God's hands? What is your response to the truth of God's word? Heavenly Father, you have made your word plain in so many ways. You have given us its truth. You have presented hope before us through the person, the power, the presence of Jesus Christ. Help us as we continue to seek to come under the control of your Holy Spirit, to respond in the way you would have us to respond, obediently, joyfully, with belief, with praise, with, as that song says, take my life, let it be, ever, only, all for thee. In Jesus' name, amen.